get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him too. Hope in the face of uncertainty. The audacity of hope. In the end, that is God's greatest gift to us, the bedrock of this nation. Hello? Yeah? Kobe? Yes? The next voice you hear would be the President of the United States. Hi, Kobe? Yeah? This is Barack. Hey, Barack, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? That is the coolest moment ever. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cobb, and this episode is the story of America's first African-American president. Now, he was a long shot, and despite all odds, Barack Obama became our 44th president. It's been 10 years since his historic election, and I recently went to go see Michelle Obama on her book tour in Washington, D.C., and guess what? Barack happened to come out on stage, and those two together are always kind of magical. And so as I was sitting there listening to her tell their story, her talk about herself, then talk about their relationship, I started to think about the interviews that I have done with both of them over the years. The first time I interviewed them both was during their historic Democratic primary run in 2008. At the time, I was working in uh, Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania primary was happening. And it was a heated primary season as Obama went against Hillary Clinton And man, did it get ugly. Shame on you, Barack Obama. It is time you ran a campaign consistent with your messages in public. That's what I expect from you. Meet me in Ohio. Let's have a debate. Wow, right? It definitely wasn't pretty between them. And keep in mind, no one really gave him a shot. Hillary thought she had it locked down and Barack came on like a wildfire. So I'll be sharing some of those clips from my time during the primary season interviewing both Barack and Michelle. Um, You know, there are a lot of ups and downs in a presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, sometimes uh, things are going well, sometimes things are going badly. Barack's whole domestic message is about creating some fairness and opportunity, you know, spreading that wealth uh, across a broader cross-section of America. Fast forward four years later, and I happened to be at the right place at the right time again in 2012 when I was working in Cleveland, Ohio, which Ohio always seems to be the epicenter of a presidential election. The winner of Ohio usually wins the presidency. And Cleveland was sort of like if they could get the vote out in the city of Cleveland, that would really drive up the Ohio number. So I had interviewed Obama about three different times during the 2012 election process in addition to interviewing Michelle. And these interviews were four years into his presidency, and he was dealing with the worst negativity than any president has ever faced. If he had been anything other than African-American, and and I don't mean to cast aspersions on African-Americans, but he would have been impeached and convicted by now. He would be impeached if he weren't America's first black president. I think we're getting close to a high crime and misdemeanor. I believe he's the most lawless president in modern times. Former President Richard Nixon, what he did was child's play compared to the range of corruption. This is actually tame compared to the level of nastiness and lies thrown at Barack Obama. In addition to the fact that during his first four years as president, our economy damn near collapsed. So it wasn't a happy-go-lucky first four years for Obama, but you can hear his strength, confidence, and poise never letting this bad energy and this bad situation get to him. He wanted a second term, and he faced a fierce battle with Mitt Romney, which crossed racial and class lines. I'm determined to fight on behalf of middle-class families, and uh, the Governor Romney's just got a different vision of of how uh, we do that. So, so, Michelle, has Barack exceeded your expectations so far as the president? Absolutely. I mean, because, first of all, Colby, I, I knew that Barack would be an outstanding president. I mean, he has got the character, the values, the substantive intellect. Along the way during this podcast and these interviews that I'll share, you will enjoy the candor from Barack Obama and the growth to both of them as public servants. I'll also explore how Barack was able to become president. It's one of the greatest political journeys in American history. Welcome to Barack Obama's Backstory. Kobe. Hey. 
Good to talk to you again, man. I know. Hey, listen, I just watched your speech in Columbus. Great speech. You get Jay-Z to open up for you? Well, you know, that's uh, Springsteen first, then Jay-Z. Okay. Oh, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to have leaders in elected office who are operating from their values and not by the next election or a set of advisors that are going to tell you, do this, it's easy, do this, it looks better. That's our former First Lady, Michelle Obama, talking about what it takes to lead, and that was in 2012. In light of the current leadership of our country and the breakdown of common decency in politics, it's refreshing to hear a bar set high for the highest office in the land. So let me tell you about Barack Hussein Obama. He was born August 4th, 1961 in Honolulu, Hawaii. He is the only president born in Hawaii and the only president born outside the contiguous 48 states. Barack is biracial. His mother, Ann Dunham, was a white woman with German, Irish, Swiss, Scottish, and Welsh ancestry. And she was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, and migrated to Hawaii. His father, Barack Obama Sr., was from Kenya and was a student at the University of Hawaii. His parents both met at the University of Hawaii in 1960 in a Russian language clash they shared. They were married six months before Barack was born. They weren't together long. A few weeks after Barack was born, his mother moved with him to the University of Washington while his father completed his studies in Hawaii. After his father graduated, he went on to graduate school at Harvard, where he received his master's in economics. Eventually, Barack Obama Sr. returned to Kenya, where he remarried, only seeing his son one more time in 1971 in Hawaii at Christmas time. He tragically died in a car accident in Kenya when Barack was 21 years old. Barack had a very interesting childhood. Being biracial gives you a different perspective on the world. I myself am biracial and have a very interesting family on both sides. So let me tell you about Barack. When he was very young, his mother married an Indonesian man, and during the first 10 years of his life, he lived in Jakarta. He would speak fluent Indonesian, learning from his stepfather and the school of hard knocks. He returned to Hawaii at 10 and lived with his maternal grandparents. He was able to get a scholarship to one of the most exclusive college prep schools on the island. His scholarship lasted from 5th to 12th grade, so he was very well educated. And it was during this time he would take on the nickname Barry. In his groundbreaking 2004 speech where the world first was alerted to this interesting black man from Illinois via Hawaii with the funny name, he talked about his roots. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. He grew up herding goats, went to school in a tin roof shack. His father... My grandfather was a cook, a domestic servant to the British. But my grandfather had larger dreams for his son. Through hard work and perseverance, my father got a scholarship to study in a magical place, America, that shone as a beacon of freedom and opportunity to so many who had come before. While studying here, my father met my mother. She was born in a town on the other side of the world in Kansas. Her father worked on oil rigs and farms through most of the Depression. The day after Pearl Harbor, my grandfather signed up for duty, joined Patton's army, marched across Europe. Back home, my grandmother raised a baby and went to work on a bomber assembly line. After the war, they studied on the GI Bill, bought a house through FHA and later moved west, all the way to Hawaii, in search of opportunity. And they, too, had big dreams for their daughter, a common dream born of two continents. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. They would give me an African name, Barack, or Blessed, believing that in a tolerant America, your name is no barrier to success. They imagined, they imagined me going to the best schools in the land, even though they weren't rich, because in a generous America, you don't have to be rich to achieve your potential. They're both passed away now, and yet I know that on this night, they do- look down on me with great pride. They stand here, and I stand here today, grateful for the diversity of my heritage, aware that my parents' dreams live on in my two precious daughters. I stand here knowing 
that my story is part of the larger American story, that I owe a debt to all of those who came before me, and that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. Barack graduated from high school in 1979. His time in Hawaii was paramount in his vision for the world. It was a place full of different cultures that had mutual respect. He said, and I quote, it became an integral part of my worldview and a basis for the values that I hold most dear. Now, all wasn't roses for a young Barry. Again, I noted a few minutes ago that I am biracial, and there are many layers to growing up split between vastly different cultures. Obama, in his memoir, talked about alcohol, marijuana, and even cocaine usage as a young man. After graduation, he went to Los Angeles to attend Occidental College, making his first public speech calling on his school to divest from businesses that were in South Africa as a protest of the racial, brutal apartheid era. And for those that don't know, Nelson Mandela was in prison for over 20 years by the apartheid government. And during the 80s, this movement, which had been around for almost 20 years prior, started to take hold on American college campuses. In his junior year, Barack transferred to Columbia University, where he majored in political science, graduating in 1983. After graduation from college, unlike most college kids with aspirations for furthering their education, Barack took a few jobs in New York City, which focused on socioeconomic issues. He was about the people and the people's struggle and how to change their lives. It was then that he became known as a community organizer. Remember, as he ran for president, a lot of people criticized him being a community organizer like that wasn't real work. And it's actually very hard work. After two years in New York, he headed to Chicago to work in some of the toughest neighborhoods in the city with a church-based community program. For three years, young Barry set up a job training program, a college prep tutor program, and a tenants right organization for one of the toughest housing projects in the city of Chicago. In one of my interviews with Michelle Obama, she discusses this time in Barack's life. But the kind of experience Barack has built is, you know, the choices that he's made over his life. He's been a community organizer working in some of the toughest neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, working with folks who don't have a voice worked with churches and communities for years, and it's been a long time that since we've had a president of the United States who's really worked on the streets for years, toe-to-toe with folks, helping them with their issues. But, you know, he's also a constitutional law scholar, civil rights attorney. He's a lawyer but didn't go make millions uh, working in corporate law, but worked on housing discrimination, employment discrimination, uh, voting rights. Um, he has more legislative experience than uh, his opponent. After three years working in the community in Chicago, Barack entered Harvard Law School. We had such an immediate impact that he was selected editor of the Harvard Law Review after his first year. In his summers, he would return to Chicago to work as an associate at several law firms, one of which where he would meet the love of his life, Michelle Robinson, who was assigned to mentor a young Barack. He would soon graduate magna cum laude from Harvard in 1991, returning to Chicago to continue his dedication to the betterment of the inner city community. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, community organizing leads to public office. You know, you think about uh, the first campaign I ran for state senate. Uh, Michelle and I sat around a kitchen table with three or four friends and drew up our own flyer and went to Kinko's and and a first lady that would have his back. Uh, so Barack's whole domestic message is about creating some fairness and opportunity, you know, spreading that wealth uh, across a broader cross-section of America. You know, as I've said time and time again, people don't mind having a high bar. They don't mind working hard every day. They just want some fairness and opportunity. Uh, I want to ask you something else, uh, President Obama. I saw the photo of you, Jay-Z, and Beyonce at a fundraiser. So what does the POTUS talk to Jay-Z and Beyonce about? What is that conversation about? You know, i got to say, I've gotten to know these uh, these guys over the last several years. They, they were supporters back in 08. You remember Beyonce sang at our at our inauguration. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, Jay-Z did uh, a bunch of uh, get-out-the-vote concerts. Uh, they're good people. Uh, Beyonce could not be sweeter to Michelle and the girls, uh, you know, because the girls are big uh, Beyonce fans, and, uh, you know, we've had them down to the White House, and uh, you know, so they're they're good friends, and obviously they're uh, you know uh, unbelievably successful. But you know, they really are down to down to earth folks, and you know we talk about the same things that I talk about with all my friends. We wow. talk about kids, and you know they they just had a new baby, and they've got a new daughter, and 
you know, I, I, I made sure that Jay Z was, uh, you know, helping Beyonce out and, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and not leaving it all to, uh, you know, mom and, and, and the mother in law. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cobe, and this is the story of Barack Obama. Mr. Cobe, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm waiting. Mr. Cole, please stand by. The next voice you hear will be the President of the United States. Kobe. Hey. Good to talk to you again, man. Yeah, I'm telling you, that part never gets old. So anyway, we left off with Barack going to law school at Harvard, having a tremendous impact there. He would then return to Chicago for summers to clerk at different law firms. And he meets Michelle Robinson, who is assigned to mentor him in the summer of 1989. I mentioned earlier that I saw her on her book tour, which if you get a chance, if you haven't seen it yet, it's pretty amazing. She talks about this time, her being sort of like a senior African-American at this law firm, and there really being a handful of people at the firm. And Barack liked her and pursued her, but she thought that that was very inappropriate. So during the summer of 89, they would attend various social functions around Chicago, and Even though she kind of rejected him, Barack continued to pursue her. The guy is persistent. And Michelle, during her book tour, talked about actually trying to set him up with her friends that summer. But how fate would go by the end of the summer of 89, they started dating. She felt something special about him, his vision, his energy, his enthusiasm. She invited him to meet her family. And there is this story about a basketball game with her brother. Now, let me tell you about her brother. His name is Craig Robertson who, by the way, is a very accomplished basketball player and coach. He played for Princeton uh, under the legendary coach Pete Carroll. He went on to coach Division I's men's basketball at both Oregon State and Brown, and he is currently an executive for the New York Knicks basketball team uh, in New York City. So that's a lot of pressure to go up against. I asked Barack about this so-called basketball game. That's a true story. Now, I think it gets exaggerated a little bit. I think I think she thought I was cute too, but <laughs> but, you know, but she also wanted to make sure that uh, you know that, that I had a little bit of game, you know, and, uh, and and that worked out pretty well. In 1991, they became engaged after he graduated from law school, and in 1992, they were married and would go on to have two daughters, Sasha and Malia. It was during this time that Obama started teaching constitutional law at the University of Chicago Law School, which actually lasted for 12 years well into his political career. He always kept his roots in the community, including working on a massive voter registration project in Illinois that registered thousands. Now, earlier I played a clip of Michelle mentioning that he could have made millions as a lawyer, but instead focused on the people. Well, he actually took a job at a law firm in Chicago that specialized in civil rights and neighborhood economic development. I asked Michelle to talk about the kind of man Barack is. One of the reasons, you know, some have talked about how passionate I can be on the stump. Uh, And a lot of my compassion comes from the fact that I'm a mother and a citizen, and I know we're going in the wrong direction. But the other part of my passion comes from the fact that I know Barack um, as a consistent man uh, with a great heart and a great deal of empathy. You know, he's the kind of guy that, in the midst of all this, hasn't missed a parent-teacher conference. You know, came home and went trick-or-treating with the kids, um, came home and made sure the kids had a Christmas tree. You know, if you want to see where, where Barack's heart is, you look into the eyes of his girls. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he believes deeply that the love that he feels for his girls that are motivating him to make this sacrifice, you know, he wants to take that energy and fight for every single child in this nation should have the kind of chances and opportunities that our girls have. It shouldn't be based on race or gender or income or political party. We should be at a point in time in this country where every single child can dream big dreams, know the possibilities for themselves, and know that they're going to have a president and a nation behind them, lifting them up every step of the way. And I know that, that is in, that's what's in Barack's heart because I've seen it and how he engages with me and our own children and the kind of commitment he's made to the community for his entire life. Uh, So, you know, obviously, I love and respect him so much, and I'm so proud of what he's done this year. Um, I am proud of how he's handled himself, how he's uh, stood up and not walked away from tough issues that no one in my lifetime has tried to, to address. Barack entered the political arena in 1996. He was elected to the Illinois State Senate, where he would serve three terms and have an immediate impact being a voice for the voiceless. In 2000, he ran his first congressional campaign and lost. 
In 2002, he was one of a few public officials that would publicly stand against the Iraq war. This was after 9-11 where patriotism was high and there were just very few dissenting opinions around that time. In 2004, he would run for the U.S. Senate seat in Illinois and win his primary in a landslide. It was during this campaign when America got its first glimpse of Barack Obama. He spoke at the 2004 National Democratic Convention. If you never heard of him before, you did that night. For alongside our famous individualism, there's another ingredient in the American saga, a belief that we're all connected as one people. If there is a child on the south side of Chicago who can't read, that matters to me even if it's not my child. If there's a senior citizen somewhere who can't pay for their prescription drugs and having to choose between medicine and the rent, that makes my life poorer even if it's not my grandparent. If there's an Arab American family being rounded up without benefit of an attorney or due process, that threatens my civil liberties. It is that fundamental belief, it is that fundamental belief, I am my brother's keeper, I am my sister's keeper, that makes this country work. It's what allows us to pursue our individual dreams and yet still come together as one American family. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, even as we speak, there are those who are preparing to divide us, the spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. The pundits, the pundits like to slice and dice our country into red states and blue states, red states for Republicans, blue states for Democrats. But I've got news for them, too. We worship an awesome God in the blue states, and we don't like federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. We coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. We are one people, all of us pledging allegiance to the Stars and Stripes, all of us defending the United States of America. Listen to this speech again. Man, that was just a powerful moment. It was like, yes, we can, before he ever mentioned the term, was kind of the feeling of that night in 2004. He was different from any politician we had seen in our generation before. Some compared his oratory skills to JFK. That night, 9 million people saw that speech, and a political star was born. The first inklings of him running for president and being the first black president would start after that night. People would say, man, that guy's going to be president one day. Later that fall, Barack Obama was elected to the Senate, representing Illinois with a staggering 70% of the vote. He entered Washington in January of 2005 on a mission to make a difference in America. In a short amount of time as senator, he introduced numerous bills on various subjects. Watching freshman Senator Kamala Harris right now, I see a lot of what Barack did in his first term and what she's doing. The first time I met Barack Obama was in late 2006. One of my friends, the late E. Stephen Collins, who was a mentor to me and um, a major community person in the city of Philadelphia, we worked together at the radio station, and he was headed to a fundraiser at the time for Shaka Fatah, the former congressman who was at the time running for mayor of Philadelphia. I remember that day because I was so exhausted. And he said that I needed to come because Barack was going to be there and that he was going to be our first black president. And I would hate that I missed this moment. So tired and all, I went and I walk in and he's like a rock star. There was definitely something magnetizing about his personality. There was only about 100 of us in this upscale bowling alley. And he took pictures and made a speech with no microphone. It was something about that moment when I realized that, yes, he was going to one day be our president. And I still get goosebumps thinking about it, despite the notion that America would never elect a black man president. There was something special about Barack Obama, and I recognized it that night. Then a few months later, on a frigid day in Springfield, Illinois, thousands gathered at the steps of the old state capitol on February 10th, 2007. It was here in Springfield where North south east and west come together 
that I was reminded of the essential decency of the American people, where I came to believe that through this decency, we can build a more hopeful America. That is why, in the shadow of the old state capitol, where Lincoln once called on a house divided to stand together, where common hopes and common dreams still live, I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for President of the United States of America. It was now a real thing. Barack Obama was running for president. Almost immediately, everybody counted the guy out. There were eight candidates in the Democratic field, but everybody focused on John Edwards, who had run in 2004. He was the handsome, charismatic senator from North Carolina and the consensus frontrunner, which was Hillary Rodden Clinton, the former first lady and senator from New York State. Barack was just another candidate in the eyes of most political pundits. The notion that America would elect a black man president just didn't seem realistic, but Barack and his team were different. And they had a plan that would, in essence, shock the world. His campaign was grassroots from the start, fueled by young people and the Internet and social media. In the first primary in Iowa, basically a mainly rural state, this is January of 2008, Obama shocked everyone coming in first. John Edwards came in second and Hillary came in third. The New Hampshire primary was next, and it was a heated battle, and the lines were drawn in this primary season. It was going to be Barack or Hillary. The New Hampshire primary was record-breaking for turnout, and Barack lost, but by a small margin. But one of his speeches there lit a fuse for the rest of America. For when we have faced down impossible odds, when we've been told we're not ready, or that we shouldn't try, or that we can't, Generations of Americans have responded with a simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. The yes, we can speech was for sure a defining moment in his candidacy. The media loved him. His speeches were so inspiring. Now, the Clintons are tough political foes, and they don't play nice. And the primary battle heated up across the country, and so did the negativity. Let's get unified. The sky will open. The light will come down. Celestial choirs will be singing. And everyone will know we should do the right thing, and the world will be perfect. So Obama struck back when they got to the Ohio primary, which... At that point, the state had lost over 50,000 jobs due to bad trade deals, and Obama's team did a masterful job of blaming Hillary for her support of these policies that were not good for Ohio. And Hillary was not too happy. Shame on you, Barack Obama. It is time you ran a campaign consistent with your messages in public. That's what I expect from you. Meet me in Ohio. Let's have a debate. Meet me in Ohio, though? That moment kind of reminds me of Suge Knight on a stage at the Source Awards when he called out Puffy. This was really getting ugly. They were definitely close in this election, but Obama was holding his own. I asked him about his vision and the negativity of campaigning. I think a lot of people are hearing us. Now, you know, we started behind in this state because a lot of people knew Senator Clinton. Uh, her father was from Scranton, and uh, she's, you know, the senator next door uh, uh, in New York. And so, you know, obviously she had an advantage starting off. But, you know, I think that uh, we've run a terrific campaign. We've been working hard. I think that we're in a strong position to do well. Uh, and, you know, I just think so much of it's going to come down to whether people turn out or not and whether they've got confidence that we can bring about change. You know, Senator Clinton uh, is a hardworking public servant, but I don't think anybody thinks she's going to shake up Washington. Uh, and I think that unless you shake up Washington, unless you get the special interest and the lobbyists out of the picture, then it's going to be very hard for us to deliver on health care reform. It's going to be hard to... Uh, have a new energy policy that can start lowering gas prices. It's going to be hard to reorder our budget to make sure that college is affordable. So uh, so that's the choice that's at, at stake in this election, and that's why I think anybody who's listening who has not voted, we need you at the polls. I also had a chance to interview Hillary around this time, and I asked her about all the negativity. You and your opponent have been going back and forth, and everybody is concerned about how are we going to all come back together. I'm glad you asked that because... Uh, I think this has been 
a very spirited uh, election, and ultimately it's good for the Democratic Party because look at all of the new people we're bringing into the race. Look at all of the new voters in the Democratic Party right here in Pennsylvania. And that does, um, you know, really weigh on my mind, and I'm sure it weighs on Barack's, that, you know, once we get the nomination uh, resolved, then we're going to close ranks. I'm going to work my heart out uh, to make sure we have a Democratic president, because I know whatever differences there are between Barack and myself, and obviously we both believe we'd be the better president and the better nominee, that's why we're in this race. Mm -hmm. But our differences pale uh, in comparison to the differences between us and the Republicans and the Republican nominee. And we'll do everything we can to make sure that people understand what a momentous choice it is, because I would feel very comfortable uh, going out and working uh, for the good of my country and to elect a Democratic president, whether or not uh, I'm the nominee, because I know uh, we can't continue the failed Republican policies we've been living with. This election came down to vision, and Barack was not talking like a normal candidate. Well, you know, I think it keeps you, you grounded. It keep, gives you perspective. Um, you know, there are a lot of ups and downs in a presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, sometimes uh, things are going well, sometimes things are going badly. But I think when you, when you keep your eyes on God and, and uh, you know, those things that are, are bigger than you, then you don't take uh, these ups and downs so personally, and you realize it's all just part of a process. Uh, you know, God has his own plans. Uh, but one of those plans, I think, is to make sure that those of us who have been blessed, that we are taking care of those who are, uh, you know, more vulnerable. And that's something that I think has been at the heart of this campaign and, and the heart of my political career. What made him different? Michelle gave us an inside look into the kind of person Barack Obama is and his vision. Politics has turned into a divisive um, sort of uh, uh, endeavor. You know, Barack comes from a community organizing background. He's seen and lived through uh, the challenges that average working class folks uh, face every day. Uh, the, the, the disappearance of jobs, factories closing up in cities and small towns all over this country, salaries not keeping up with the cost uh, of living, you know, health care, people, you know, spending hours in the emergency room, folks with insurance, uh, not being able to cover expenses because deductibles and premiums are so high. Education, we haven't invested the amount of uh, money that we need to in education. No child left behind isn't working. Um, Barack believes that every child in this country should have an, an education and should be willing to uh, return the, you know, the, the cost of education with community service, which I know a lot of young people would be willing to do. Uh, so Barack's whole domestic message is about creating some fairness and opportunity, you know, spreading that wealth uh, across a broader cross-section of America. You know, as I've said time and time again, people don't mind having a high bar. They don't mind working hard every day. They just want some fairness and opportunity. The other intriguing part of his campaign was his transparency. It didn't feel like spin. It felt like he was giving it to you straight. Uh, I say to them, if you're cynical about politics as it's been, then it's time to try something new. Uh, And that's what we've been offering, a grassroots movement, people getting involved, neighbors, ordinary folks who have just been... Uh, motivated uh, to try to take their government back. And, you know, many of my policies, uh, you know, nobody's criticized me for my policies. Uh, Nobody's suggested somehow that my health care plan doesn't uh, make sure that every single American can get health care that's at least as good as I have as a member of Congress. Uh, People agree with me that we've got to make college affordable, and we've provided a specific mechanism to do it. On foreign policy, I was opposed to the war before it started, unlike uh, either Senator Clinton or Senator McCain. So, you know, I've shown my judgment when it comes to foreign policy. I I think that at this point it's really just a matter of people, uh, you know, being willing to go ahead and and reach for what's possible instead of just settling for, you know, what they're accustomed to. Coming up next on the Backstory Podcast, history is made. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible. Who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time. Who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer.
and the unprecedented outbursts of negativity against Barack. We have a president who is aligned with the jihad force. You're declaring war on this country with a bunch of jihadis you brought in. You did it, you son of a bitch. No, he's not a Muslim, he's an atheist. He's an Arab. His middle name does matter. He wants to be known as Barack Hussein Obama. Here's a person who says he's a Christian. All right, let's take him at face value. President Obama, what song is getting full rotation in your iPod right now? What you riding around with? You know, during campaign time, I try to keep it upbeat uh, and... You know, so we just talked about Jay-Z. You know, there's, there's a bunch of Jay-Z songs on, on my iPod. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Is 99 Problems on there? You know, <laughs> I, I got to say, I, I go with, uh, you know, some other stuff like uh, uh, My First Song, you know, which, which just wow. kind of keeps me steady. That's a great and song. That's a great song. Uh, you know, it, it reminds you, Wow. you know, that you uh, you always have to stay hungry. Welcome back to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and this is the story of Barack Hussein Obama. The 2008 primary season intensified, and African-American voters overwhelmingly supported the Clintons during Bill's first two terms. He was considered and labeled the first black president because many of his policies benefited the black community. But the difference this time was support for Obama continued to intensify, led by black voters, overwhelming support everywhere. I'm sure this was tough for Hillary, who had figured she had black voters in the bag. And with her experience and that of her husband, she was the right choice. She actually had the backing of several prominent African-American leaders who felt she had more experience and they didn't believe that Obama could win. But that tide changed quickly. Certain things were said on the campaign trail that continued to widen that divide, forcing some African-American leaders to support Obama and abandon Hillary. Then you add in the heated rhetoric between them, and it was an all-out battle in the Democratic Party. The South Carolina primary was very ugly, and during an interview, Hillary made a comment about Dr. King and the Civil Rights Act, and to many, it felt like she was diminishing Dr. King's accomplishment while praising Lyndon Johnson's role in passing the act. This divided voters as they both sparred, and Obama won South Carolina convincingly over Hillary. That infuriated her camp, and an angry Bill Clinton called Congressman Clyburn from South Carolina, who kind of stayed neutral out of respect to the Clintons, but Bill didn't think he did. It was a 2 a.m. call from Bill Clinton to uh, Congressperson Clyburn, and Bill said, if you bastards want to fight, then you damn well will get one. And you can actually Google the video of uh, him talking about it. One of Clinton's talking points about Obama, and many on the right as well, was his lack of experience. But Michelle Obama was not having any of that. Um, He has more legislative experience than uh, his opponent does, which is something that people don't talk about. He's been in the Illinois state legislature for for eight years and has able to get things done, like expand health care for kids in our state, pass an earned income tax credit. That's in addition to the years that he spent in the U.S. Senate. So again, you know, it is, you know, that's the job of the opponent to try to cash your, um, the person that you are running against as somehow being deficient. You know, obviously the Washington insiders would like America to believe that the only person who can or should be president are those who had the limited access to the White House or to uh, a few select years uh, working with other Washington insiders. After his convincing win in South Carolina, Obama received an endorsement from Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of JFK, and the late Senator Ed Kennedy from Massachusetts. This was as high as an endorsement as he could have received at that time. These were established Democrats like political royalty. The Obama campaign was gaining momentum. In the first Super Tuesday election where there were 22 primaries, Obama won 13 of them, many convincingly. He continued his momentum through that spring, and there was pressure put on Hillary to back out and she wouldn't. Then she made this comment. Uh, there has been this urgency to end this. And, you know, I, historically that makes no sense. Um, so I, I find it a bit of a mystery. You don't buy the party unity argument? I don't, because, again, I've been around long enough. Uh, you know, my husband did not wrap up the nomination in 1992 until he won the California primary um, somewhere in the middle of June, June. right? We all remember Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June in California. That particular comment to many insinuated that there could be an assassination and that created even more negativity towards her campaign. And frankly, this is where the boldness of his opposition, not just in the Democratic Party, not just with Hillary, but just in general, really started to get nasty. 
And now we have what uh, some are reading as a suggestion that somebody knock off Os- Osama, um, uh, Obama. Obama. Well, both we, we could. Well, well, <laughs> well, you know, t- talk about how you really feel. That actually aired on television. Wow, right? Hillary would apologize for the comment, said she didn't mean anything by it, and um, she was very sincere. And Obama, to his credit, helped her by supporting her in this moment. It was at that time that I also realized that they were going to work together because that was a pretty difficult thing to happen. But Obama took the high road and to Michelle, you know, when they go high, when they go low, we go high. That was already in effect at that time. It was clear at that point that Obama was going to get the nomination. So they met and they worked out a deal for Hillary to be his secretary of state. She dropped out of the race and then started to campaign on his behalf. And now they were a unit as they head into the Democratic Convention in Denver. Now, usually the main event of a convention is held at an arena that holds 20,000 people. But Obama was generating huge crowds everywhere he went. And on August 28, 2008, in front of a record crowd of 84,000 people at Mile High Stadium, this happened. With profound gratitude and great humility, I accept your nomination for presidency of the United States. This was real. He was on path to becoming our president, our first African-American president. I asked Michelle about their family and the sacrifice that they are making for her husband to go on this journey. And if he became president, what would her goals be as first lady? But you know what? There are people who have given their lives in tougher situations. You know, this is the kind of stuff you feel like, this is why we're here. We were put on this earth to take risks and to make sacrifices for others. And when I think about it, I don't think, you know, just about the sacrifice to me, but I think about the gifts he's going to bring to, to, to all the children of the world, in particular mine. You know, what Barack can do for this country is going to help my girls. Um, so I can't sit back and say, well, I don't want to give up anything. I don't want to lose my husband. I don't want to, you know, sacrifice time when the greater good is going to require all of us to give up something big. Um, so, yeah, you know, we're going to have to make adjustments. We already have. You know, this election has been going on a long time, uh, and Barack is had to really sacrifice time with the girls and with the family. But, you know, we are we have faith in God. We have a strong family. We've got good friends around us, um, and they keep us whole and stable. So we're in a place where we can make these sacrifices. Um, so that wouldn't stop me from having somebody like Barack, a man that I know who can have an impact on this country. I wouldn't, you know, think about just me in this situation and think about what we can do for the greatest number of people. All right, we know all this stuff about Barack now. What about you as the First Lady? What are going to be some of your goals uh, for the country if you become the First Lady? Well, the thing I found, I found myself talking most about, passionately about, is the, you know, the struggles and challenges that are facing uh, women and families. Um, uh, right now, women are, are balancing and juggling in ways that, that uh, we haven't seen before. I mean, I know this from my own mother who, you know, had so uh, fewer resources than I ever could, but she sees, you know, what I'm trying to do in terms of holding down a career and taking care of kids and trying to be a good mother and looking after my own health. Um, if that's taking a toll on somebody like me who has degrees and resources, then my question has always been what kind of toll is this taking on the vast majority of women who don't have flexibility, don't have resources. You know, so we talk a lot about family values in this country. we talked about it as a symbol, but we know that women are drowning trying to keep it all together. And I want to talk about that in a different way. I don't want to talk about it in, in the terms of, you know, women, we can do it all and we should because we can't. Uh, and we don't have the kind of resources that we need, uh, adequate and affordable child care. Um, we, we have to have health care if we're going to keep our own mon- minds and bodies and spirits in check. Uh, we've got to have more flexibility in the workplace. Work is not a choice for people anymore because incomes aren't keeping up with the cost of living. You know, so we need as women to talk honestly about the challenges that we face and not pretend like we can do it all, which is what we do. Uh, we just take more on our shoulders and just keep smiling. But in the inside, we're dying. The general election was between a potential first African-American president and a war hero, John McCain. And now that it was a general election, it was very divisive and it fell along racial lines. John McCain picks an unknown governor of Alaska named Sarah Palin to be his running mate. She was ill prepared for the moment and was a precursor to where we are now politically. It really got ugly. 
I mean, this is America. And uh, frankly, we're, we're scared. Um, we're scared of an Obama presidency. First of all, I want to be president of the United States, and obviously I do not want Senator Obama to be. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. Now, I, I just, now I just, now, now look, I, I, if I didn't think I wouldn't be one heck of a lot better president, I wouldn't be running, okay? And that's the point. That's, that's the point. Um, I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. To his credit, John McCain handled a lot of the craziness with common sense, and he had respect for his colleague in the Senate, even though they did not see eye to eye on policy. In fact, Obama was requested to speak at the man's funeral, which says so much about the respect John McCain had for Barack. That usually doesn't happen. The next few months will be the most intense in U.S. history as the economy was on the verge of collapse during the worst recession since the Depression. And on November 4th, 2008... CBS projects that Senator Barack Obama of Illinois will be the next president of the United States. He defeats John McCain, the senator from Arizona and Vietnam War hero. And no matter whom you voted for, you'd have to agree this is an incredible milestone in the history of this country. A century and a half after the Constitution abolished slavery and guaranteed blacks the right to vote, four decades after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, voters have chosen our first African-American president. Barack Obama demolished John McCain, 365 electoral votes to 173. He did it. He really made history. That night, over 240,000 people gathered in Grant Park in Chicago to celebrate. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy. Tonight is your answer. It's the answer told by lines that stretched around schools and churches in numbers this nation has never seen, by people who waited three hours and four hours, many for the first time in their lives, because they believed that this time must be different, that their voices could be that difference. It's the answer spoken by young and old, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, gay, straight, disabled and not disabled, Americans who sent a message to the world that we have never been just a collection of individuals or a collection of red states and blue states. We are and always will be the United States of America. I remember proudly telling my daughter the next day and her excitement and awareness of our president. And literally, for the bulk of her beginning years, Barack Obama was her president. His speech was unlike many prior, less ego and more about the people who got him elected. But above all... I will never forget who this victory truly belongs to. It belongs to you. It belongs to you. I was never the likeliest candidate for this office. We didn't start with much money or many endorsements. Our campaign was not hatched in the halls of Washington. It began in the backyards of Des Moines, in the living rooms of Concord and the front porches of Charleston. It was built by working men and women who dug into what little savings they had to give $5, and $10, and $20 to the cause. It grew strength from the young people who rejected the myth of their generation's apathy, who left their homes 
and their families for jobs that offered little pay and less sleep. It drew strength from the not-so-young people who braved the bitter cold and scorching heat to knock on doors of perfect strangers, and from the millions of Americans who volunteered and organized and proved that more than two centuries later, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people has not perished from the earth. This is your victory. Barack Hussein Obama would take office on January 20th, 2009. The country was knee-deep in a recession. He had both houses to work with, but he also had a tremendous amount of opposition. I interviewed him during his re-election campaign, and we talked about his first-term accomplishments. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, think about everything we've already gotten done, Colby. Even though the politics have always been tough. You know, we saved an auto industry, saved uh, a million jobs throughout Ohio and Michigan. And we're building better cars than ever. We got health care reform done, and that means that there are millions of people who are going to be able to make sure that they have good health care and that their insurance companies aren't jerking them around. And mm-hmm. if they don't have health care, they can finally get it. Uh, we have made sure that we expanded student loan programs and Pell Grant programs so that young people can afford to go to college. So, you know, a lot of stuff has gotten done. Now, we've got a lot more to do. And my hope is, is that if we have a decisive victory in this election, that Republicans who spent a lot of time worrying about trying to beat me will start focusing on actually trying to improve the country. And that's my whole mindset. This is my last campaign. And the only reason I'm running is to make sure that we can finish what we started. I asked Michelle, did he exceed her expectations as president in his first term? First of all, Colby, I I knew that Barack would be an outstanding president. I mean, he has got the character, the values, the substantive intellect. But the thing that's impressed me most about him and watching him up close and personal is just the level of calm and maturity he brings to all of these high-level decisions. I mean, you don't see Barack waffling. You know, you don't see Barack being moved by a poll or even pressure or doing what's politically easy. And that's really difficult in this climate. You've got to, we've got to have leaders in elected office who are operating from their values and not by the next election or a set of advisors that are going to tell you, do this, it's easy, do this, it looks better. You know, he has handled himself in, in crisis after crisis, Colby. I mean, when you look at what he's been hit with, an economy that was on the brink of collapse, we were in two wars. Um, you know, we, we had young people dying right. in wars right. that... You know, um, you know that that you know needed to be brought to an end. Um, you know, the, the again seeing the auto industry almost on the brink of collapse. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on. And Barack has steadily over the past three and a half years faced each one of those crises with calm and and making decisions based on working families and you know and, and middle class security um, that is the foundation of any strong economy and doing what was hard you know passing health reform many people told him that that wasn't the politically easy thing to do but that's not why he fought for health reform he did it because it was the right thing to do and that's what i what what impresses me most when i watch him in action again though there was this unprecedented negativity towards Barack, fueled by Fox News, which dedicated nonstop coverage to anything anti-Obama. This is not unusual for a president to face opposition. Bill Clinton faced a lot of opposition and actually was impeached by the House. And Trump is kind of going through it right now, but Trump actually contributed to the tone. Barack had to deal with so much more. I do think it's quite possible he is Muslim, even though he says he is Christian. Why do they think he's a Muslim? Barack Obama's emotional attachment to the Muslim world has hurt the USA. President Obama was soft, almost subservient to the Muslim world. Deep emotional ties to Islam. I don't hate Obama. He's only been to church like four times since he's been president. He golfed 30 times. President Obama has taken fewer vacation days than Ronald Reagan or uh, Bush the Younger. And you say? I say you should take more. Obama's taking a vacation every five minutes. Where's the leadership? On the golf course? Is this what leadership looks like? 115 or 16 golf outings. Is he ever working? It's not even Marxism. Mm -mm, Mm-mm, mm-mm older than 1848 it was um the man who portrays the devil looks a lot like the president of the united states folks i've been told this by high up folks they say listen 
Obama and Hillary both smell like sulfur. They smell like hell. We're the young girl saying, no, no, help me. And the government is Roman Polanski. President Obama, who wants mandate circumcision. I feel like President Obama is just saying, you know what? <laughs> well, our president is frankly out of his mind. You're a slime ball that hates this country and is allied with a bunch of people wearing nightgowns. He bashes FNC more than ISIS, and we don't behead anybody. I just love my country. Do you think Obama is a crypto Muslim? I mean, this guy is such a total pussy. We need to do something to pray to be delivered from this president who is, he is a disaster. I asked Michelle, how does he handle this stuff personally? You know, he just, he's able to um, compartmentalize. And when he walks from the Oval Office and he comes home to, to our house and those doors close, he's dead. Um, he makes sure that whenever he's not traveling, he's at home in time for dinner. You know, he, he shuts off that part of himself and gives the rest of himself to our daughters and to me. And he makes us feel like we're the most important people in wow. the world, even though I know that he's dealing with crisis after crisis. And, you know, that's why I love him so much. Did, you know, you... Someone asked me, is he romantic? And the romance comes these days in those little gestures, you know, mm-hmm. knowing that he's taken time to have a quiet dinner with me or to coach, you know, Sasha's basketball team when, you know, they're trying to get rid of Osama bin Laden. Right, right. You know, it's just knowing that he's, he's always prioritizing our family because he knows that for so many families like ours, you know, having security, having stability is the key to being able to be a strong provider, which is why he's fighting so hard to make sure that all our families have that security. Not only did he face the negative backlash from the media, his negative backlash was fueled by unprecedented opposition from the Republican Party. He couldn't get anything done. This is Senate leader Mitch McConnell after Obama was elected. Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. I also interviewed Vice President Biden around that time, and I talked to him about governing and the opposition. These guys still want to give, they want to give a tax cut, Colby. They're holding up a middle-class tax cut, which means a family, $50,000 a year, four people, would get $2,100 under our proposal. They will not vote for that unless we vote to give 120,000 families in America wow. who make $8.34 million a year a three hundred and seventy. $5 billion tax cut over the next 10 years. How was Barack able to handle all of this? I asked him. You know, I, I got to say, you, you get a thick skin being president and running for president. And you know, every day I meet somebody who says, you know, thank you, you know, my child now has health insurance and didn't have it before. Or thank you, I was able to study at a community college and now I've got a job even though I didn't have one before. Or thank you, you helped me. Uh, to save my home from from foreclosure. And when you remember every single day who you're fighting for and and who you're representing, then you really don't worry too much about uh, uh, some of the stuff that goes on in Washington. You'll notice a theme he has regarding young people. It's a passion. Michelle talked about this regarding voting, which many young people still haven't consistently embraced yet. If you don't vote, then the people who are voting get to decide uh, the big, huge direction questions like, whether we invest in the environment, how much money do we put into uh, building an economy that's going to provide solid jobs, whether or not, you know, more kids have student loans, you know, whether or not you're going to get to stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26 or not. I mean, these are the kind of choices that if you're not there voting for it, the people who are voting are going to vote their interest, and their interest may not have anything to do with what young people want or where this country needs to go. Um, But that's exactly how the democracy is supposed to work, that the people who vote get to determine the direction. Uh, So young people have to understand that even if they're just uh, turning voting age, even if they're just still in school, um, these decisions determine the direction this country will take for decades to come. So you don't want to be handed a country that's not one that you help to, to determine the direction. You know, so there's nothing more important for young people than to get registered uh, and to make sure they actually turn out to vote. Um, so it's important. Uh, as, as Congress 
Min John Lewis, who was a uh, one of the most renowned civil rights activists, said that the vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool that we have in this country to make change. And people fought and died so that we could have this right. The 2012 presidential run was his last public campaign for office. And I just happened to interview him on the last day of his campaign for presidency for the second term. And we talked about this moment in his life. You can hear the raspiness of his voice. Today is the last full day of your campaign. How does it feel, man? It's after all these years of being in political office after today and tomorrow when people vote, you won't be campaigning anymore. How does that feel? Well, you know, you get a little nostalgia. You know, you think about uh, the first campaign I ran for state senate. Uh, Michelle and I sat around a kitchen table with three or four friends and drew up our own flyer and went to Kinko's and Xerox didn't start knocking wow. on doors. And nobody knew who I was. And You know, uh, the great thing about campaigning, though, is, is it uh, reminds you why you do it, because you're meeting people uh, who tell you their stories of what they're going through, and, uh, you know, jobs that they've lost health care that they can't afford, uh, and you set your mind uh, to doing something about it. That's what we've done over the last four years, and that's what I'd like to do over the next four years, but I'm going to need your help, and I'm going to need everybody uh, in the area to make sure that uh, they get out there and vote. Up to the last minute, he was driving folks to vote. Colby, I just want to say there's a lot at stake, and obviously you know, we've gone through a tough four years, but we're finally starting to turn the corner and make some progress out here. We cannot go back to the same failed policies that got us into this mess. So I need people to step up. Step up for me, uh, but more importantly, step up for the country. He would go on to win re-election in 2012 with 332 electoral votes to 206. Closer than 2008, but a very comfortable win. He won Ohio and Cleveland, where I was living at, working at, and on the radio, uh, the African-American community in what they call over-indexed. More people than they expected came out to vote, and he won Ohio. There's one defining moment, though, that I'd like to share that kind of encapsulates the importance to history of the election of Barack Obama, first and second time. This election had many firsts and many stories that will be told for generations, but one that's on my mind tonight is about a woman who cast her ballot in Atlanta. She is a lot like the millions of others who stood in line to make their voice heard in this election, except for one thing. Ann Nixon Cooper is 106 years old. She was born just a generation past slavery, a time when there were no cars on the road or planes in the sky, when someone like her couldn't vote for two reasons, because she was a woman and because of the color of her skin. And tonight, I think about all that she's seen throughout her century in America, the heartache and the hope, the struggle and the progress, the times we were told that we can't, and the people who pressed on with that American creed, yes, we can. At a time when women's voices were silenced and their hopes dismissed, she lived to see them stand up and speak out and reach for the ballot. Yes, we can. When there was despair in the Dust Bowl and depression across the land, she saw a nation conquer fear itself with a new deal, new jobs, a new sense of common purpose. Yes, we can. When the bombs fell on our harbor and tyranny threatened the world, she was there to witness a generation rise to greatness and a democracy was saved. Yes, we can. She was there for the buses in Montgomery, the hoses in Birmingham, a bridge in Selma, and a preacher from Atlanta who told the people that we shall overcome. Yes, we can. A man touched down on the moon. A wall came down in Berlin. A world was connected by our own science and imagination. And this year, in this election, she touched her finger to a screen and cast her vote. Because after 106 years in America, through the best of times and the darkest of hours, she knows how America can change. Yes, we can. America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there's so much more to do. So tonight, let us ask ourselves, if our children 
should live to see the next century. If my daughters should be so lucky to live as long as Ann Nixon Cooper, what change will they see? What progress will we have made? This is our chance to answer that call. This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Thank you all for listening to the Backstory Podcast. Thank you to Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, and Hillary Clinton, and DJ One Plus Two on the production. Let me know your thoughts on social media at Kobe Cobe on Twitter and at Backstory PCC on Twitter and Instagram. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, The Dude. He just turned 85 years old. I'm talking about the legendary Quincy Jones. It seems like you keep reinventing yourself into different things, and which I guess is a testament to anybody who is trying to be in this music industry. How have you adapted to um, technology? Because when you started, things were totally different than the way it is now. I mean, how did you adapt to the technology of making music? Well, yeah, we started with 78 records, you know. If you want to do a multi-track, you had to do cell sync. We'd sit there with a two-track and a, and a, and a, a mono's track. It would take us four hours to do one overdub, and when you want to dub, double voice. Mm-hmm. But I was also lucky that, you know, when I was a vice president of Phillips and Mercury at one point, and we used to go to Eindhoven, Holland, where the experimental laboratories, they, they showed us the very first audio cassette mm-hmm. ever made in 1962. They also showed us a dime-thin laser beam Video disc, which wow. they said we won't be able to put this out for 35 years. Well, wow. that's right. You know, JVC and Pioneer had it out. Now, Victor had a hard time with it, and so did MCA when it was Disco Vision. Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level.